0: Your chair like, squeaks. You get excited
1: yeah. and you lean forward and your, your chair squeaks
2: and I can't... No,
3: fi- I'm going to get a new you know, chair. And I
2: can't filter out.
3: the like
2: The Gilda Radner scene when she's, you know, Rosanna Rosanna Dana talks to, talks to Walter Cronkite <laughs> and she moves her chair and it sounded funny. She tries to do it again so he won't think she farted. <laughs> he's, he's
1: farting
0: I'm actually every farting. Time. He's just farting. <laughs>
2: cut that out.
1: He's smart. He's gassy, but smart. Renal physiology complex, yet logical, and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions, to understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm. The Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight we are discussing Chapter 5, which is discussing the distal nephron, the part of the kidney where we really add a lot of intelligence and finely tune the urine and focus on the homeostasis. We're going to be focusing on acidification, concentration of urine, regulating sodium. All the important things, all the important disorders that we attribute to the kidney have a role right here in the distal nephron. Tonight, we have the full crew. I'll go around the horn. Juan Carlos.
4: Uh, Hello, everybody. Juan Carlos Vélez, self-proclaimed peace prophet. Happy to be here in this episode.
2: Excellent. Melanie, I'm Melanie Honig here and thrilled to
5: be talking about one of the best segments of the nephron. Letty? Uh, Leticia Rallon here from UCSF. I'll definitely go by Letty and uh, excited to be explaining this next chapter and I'm a follower of the piss prophet.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Roger? Uh, Roger Rodby, Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. Thrilled to be here tonight. Uh, This is my favorite part of the nephron because it's what makes urine, urine.
6: Amy? Uh, Amy L. Uh, from Arizona. I'm also very happy to be here, and I just wish my baby would go to sleep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Josh? Hi, Josh Waitsman here. I'm a nephrology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. While the glom is still my favorite part of the nephron, I think this is a really important and neat part, and I love reading this chapter. And Anna.
7: I'm Anna Gatti. I'm Indianapolis. I'm a fellow at IU and um, really love the distal nephron as well. Sorry, Josh. Excellent.
1: Okay, so uh, chapter five begins. It says that there are. we're focusing on the distal nephron, which he says begins at the macula densa at the end of the cortical thick ascending limb and extends to the end of the nephron. And he divides uh, the distal nephron into four segments. Distal tubule, which I always call the distal convoluted tubule, somehow that We lost the convoluted. Then the connecting segment, the cortical collecting tubule, and the medullary collecting tubule. And I know I brought this up earlier, but I I was taught that it was a cortical collecting duct and the medullary collecting duct. Did we lose ducts? When When did ducts become tubules?
3: I think it's just interchangeable.
1: I have tortured medical students for years asking them the difference between a duct and a tubule. And I would always say that a tubule services a single glomerulus, but a duct, you have multiple tubules joined together and then they form a duct. And I don't know where I learned that, but that or if I made that up.:
6: <laughs> No, I've heard that before too. I've heard that before too. But I don't know. Did if it's you hear true it from
1: enough.
5: me? <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of it that described this way, but I mean it makes sense, and although I, I don't know that it necessarily makes a big difference
1: for this. And is there anybody out there that loves the connecting segment the most?
5: Well,
3: I have a question about it because this something never occurred to me till I read this chapter, and it take, it takes you back to Figure One Three. The thing about Figure One Three is it has three nephrons all going, having connecting segments, going to one cortical collecting and medullary collecting tubule. Is that really the case that that I always thought every nephron had its own cortical collecting tubule and and medullary collecting tubule? This is news to me, but it makes it clear that it's kind of like you have these different nephrons and they all meet up at a a collecting duct or tubule through these connecting segments.
2: Does anybody know what that is? I'm a pathologist here. You know, I think that it's true that multiple nephrons will feed into, I guess it would be a duct, but I think for, you know, teaching purposes, usually, especially if you're thinking about early learners like medical students, it's easier to think of them separately and just think of a single unit. Similarly, it's also very easy to ignore. Please don't be upset the connecting segment, (laughs) and simply do the distilled convoluted tubule, if you will, and then do the cells that feature uh, in the collecting duct or tubule.
0: I think one thing that's interesting, too, in seeing how the different cells are diagrammed out as we go through the chapter, like this is a really physiologically based mindset approach to which cell types there are and how they work. And we see in new kinds of data that are coming out in single cell RNA sequencing databases, like we can figure out these kinds of cells from sequencing data on the back end, and there are probably, and sometimes there are fewer types of cells than we think there are. In some places, there are many more types of cells than we thought there were. There's this paper that identifies like a whole new kind of cell that looks like an intercalated cell, but it's not a type A or a type B intercalated cell. And then all of these like other distal tubule cells really look pretty similar to each other in all these big data sets that we see.
1: So Rose Rose then states that the uh, distal nephron is a site of the final qualitative changes in urine excretion that's where they're made. And he describes four primary purposes. One, urinary concentration. Two, urinary acidification. Three, secretion of potassium. And four, sodium conservation. Though the chapter makes it clear that there's also potassium reabsorption done in the intercalated cells. As another. As, even though you didn't put it out as a specific purpose, they don't skip that. That's definitely a, uh, an important part of the, the story here and that he emphasizes which i loved is that the sodium enters the distal nephron at a concentration of 75 milliequivalents per liter and can exit the kidney at less than 1 milliequivalent per liter which kind of kind of blew my mind like i know our hospital lab goes down to just less than 20 is the lowest urine sodium that we can get and to see that it actually goes all the way down to less than 1 kind of like it kind of blew my mind
3: well, if you think about it, that's one thing the kidney is really good at is conserving sodium. And I always think of things evolutionarily that, you know, when we left the oceans, that's something we better be able to be, be good at. And it wasn't necessarily we had an abundance of sodium in our diets. Salt was a big deal historically. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if I mentioned this before in one of the earlier uh, podcasts, but there's this: there's a tribe of uh, Amazonian Indians who eat almost no sodium and, and they've, they have checked their urine sodium and it's less than one millimole per day. So they basically eat no sodium and they excrete no sodium. And so it's really true that if you, you know, and they're not hypotensive. They have no hypertension, by the way, but they're not hypotensive. They're fine. They're in steady state. They eat no sodium. They excrete no extra sodium. And, and uh, uh, it's really remarkable that you can get to, get to that level.
1: And they have no cardiovascular disease whatsoever. Right. The low sodium diet completely protects them from cardiovascular disease, even though their aldosterone levels are through the roof. So the next time someone tells you that aldosterone is bad, you just need to point them to these these uh, these Indians and say, hey, it's not the Aldo. It's the Aldo plus the sodium. That seems to be toxic
3: i worked it out what 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 one millie equivalent of sodium would be how much salt that would be and realized that a gram of salt is 17 milliequivalents. equivalents and i figured out what you know what the weight of one grain of salt is you know not a grain like the old grains whatever a grain that we know about 20 grains of sodium or a pinch basically a pinch of salt is how much uh, these indians will excrete in a day so that's all they're getting and all their diet is basically a pinch of salt and are they vegetarian uh, they uh, they must be there must be almost no meat because because there's
7: got to be you can yeah this is making
3: me want a hot dog but i mean it's also got to be the blandest diet in the world i mean but god bless them
6: So the Amazonian Indians that Roger mentions are called the Yanomamo or sometimes called the Yanomami Indians. They live in the Amazon rainforest that borders Brazil and Venezuela. And they were first probably described by an anthropologist, Napoleon Chagnon, in the 1960s and a geneticist, James Neal. Um, But probably initial contact with the modern world was anywhere from 1910 to 1950. The population consists of 22 to 30,000 individuals that are separated into around 150 distinct families unit communities, and they cover an area of around 36,000 square miles. Genetic information suggests that they've been isolated from the modern world for the past several thousands of years. And the Yanomami are a, a hunter-gatherer society. Their diet consists mostly of plantains and some cassava, as well as they do eat meat, the mango hunt, and then they also fish as well the study that roger mentions the initial one was done in 1975 and the average blood pressure between men and women of different ages anywhere from zero to 50 was 100 over 60 millimeters of mercury with an average age of 30 the urine sodium as roger mentioned was very very low so in a 24-hour collection only one milkyl of sodium was excreted on average with an average of 152 milkyl of potassium excreted and they actually compared the samples compared to the four control individuals, which were their researchers, and their urine sodium on average was 140 to 200 with a urine potassium of 40 to 70 and an average blood pressure of 130 over 80. The urine aldosterone levels in the Yanomamo Indians were 70 times that of the control and the plasma renin was around five times that of the control, which is crazy high, as Joel mentions. But, you know, all the researchers mentioned that on average, the population is much younger in age, as well as there's not really any obesity there. So the average BMI is around 20 to 21. And they're, of course, very physically active. There is some interest looking at the Anomami Indians in terms of the intracellular potassium and sodium ratio, because there's some thought that that may affect cancer development. And um, they've been in the news pretty recently because of miners encroaching on their land and deforestation. Key takeaways from the Yanomamo Indians would be to have a low-salt diet, do you have a high-vegetable diet, stay thin, be very physically active, and don't get old.
1: Uh, you know what we stopped at? It's Josh's favorite topic. We went back to tight junctions, right? We went right back to tight junctions. He's like, I need to point out, we got eight strands here. We've come a long way from the proximal tubule.
0: So I, w- I want to issue a personal correction that I went back and looked at my references on the frog bladder, and I had it wrong. It actually was two different kinds of epithelia I was reading about, frog skin and toad bladders. So actually, we should be talking about tighter than a toad's bladder, which does roll off the tongue quite a bit nicer, and I think was Anna's suggestion for a catchphrase. No, race. no, no, we said toad bladder, and I thought we had to be talking you about cor- frog em- bladder, I yeah. oh, I was going toad bladder, because so, I yeah, knew this stuff,
1: like I the think- back of my hand. I I don't want to. I don't want to embarrass you, Josh. I I
0: can't believe he's going frog bladder. I appreciate that people are treating me with kid gloves here.
1: Anna pointed out that toads are dry, frogs are wet. Apparently, it doesn't matter. Tighter than a toad bladder, (laughs) and is it still fifty thousand times more tighter than the proximal tubule? I stand by that statement. That is true. Yeah. Okay. Okay, but here we are now in the distal nephron. We've got eight strands. Count them. Eight strands in the tight junctions. Prevents back diffusions of solutes, no fluid going through the paracellular space except for the chloride that gets reabsorbed there, right? That's right. And then uh, he comes back to his, Burton Rose's favorite topic, there are three different processes that protect the distal nephron from seeing massive amounts of fluid.
0: Before we get to this section, there was, yeah. there was a statement here I wanted to get back to because in my like little bit of outside reading I did on this, he mentions that in terms of active sodium transport... There's a lower level of sodium potassium ATPase activity than in other nephron segments. Uh, This is on the second page of the chapter for folks. Um, Actually, I think newer data shows us that actually the distal convoluted tubule actually has a very high concentration of sodium potassium ATPase pumps, probably higher than any other section of the kidney, just that it's so short that it's really hard to find them and detect them. So there actually is the ability to do a lot of um, sodium and chloride reabsorption in this segment because of that high amount of sodium potassium ATPase activity. Um, and I think that's one of those things we understand better now than we did then.
4: Excellent. Not only shorter, but if it's if it's also like Roger was uh, uh, making the point about the convergence of the loop of Henle into the connecting segments into the distal tubules, does that mean that you have just more abundance of the more proximal segments of the tubule than distal nephron.
0: I, I'm still confused on our plumbing on when we stop calling something distal convoluted tubule and we when we start calling it collecting duct as in the the sum of oh that's right
4: because it's actually will be yeah. my bad it will be connecting tubule takes to the collecting but I think duct. some of
0: those distinctions are that's a little right. artificial like clearly there are some cells in the most proximal of the collecting ducts that really look like a lot like distal convoluted tubule cells and there are probably some cells in the distal convoluted tubule that are very distal that look a lot like proximal collecting duct cells so I think it's probably a little bit more of a gray zone, then, then we appreciate I'm
3: glad you made that point because, you know, it's it, it makes it sound like there's these four segments and they go right into the other that you go from one cell to the next cell. And that just doesn't make any sense. They probably kind of slowly morph in. And as you read, the end of this one does a little bit of this and the beginning of this one does a little bit yeah. of that. And I think they're just, you know, I think they're, they're hybrids and then they become a, a full blown collecting... Uh, tubule cell, etc. But I make, it, it makes sense to describe four different areas or whatever, and and, mm-hmm. and and to get the basic concepts of each area, what they do, and not worry so much about that the end of one looks like the beginning of the next or not, because then you then then you end up with do nothing. We really
1: whi- need four, don't you think? We can do three, don't we think we can comfortably ignore the connecting segment?
3: Absolutely. Like
1: I'm I'm st- I'm starting that I'm starting that petition. <laughs> Let's get rid of the connecting segment.
3: Nobody likes it. That's why I like the idea. That's why I like the idea. It's a little conduit to the collecting duct, and maybe that it's you know it's it serves more than one nephron. It's just basically what brings them all together. So in, in Figure One Three, but
1: okay. So Burnrose leans into the, the important aspect that the distal nephron has very fine control, but it depends on a limited amount of fluid getting delivered there, and he. Re goes back goes back to this thing that he loves to talk about. These three processes that limit the exposure to all this fluid. The first one is autoregulation, which is just the the more pressure you apply to the afferent arterial, the more it clamps down. So this is an auto and this is a process we see in capillary beds throughout the body, and it also happens in the glomeruli. And the last, the more it dilates. And the less, the more dilates. That's right. And then we have a TG feedback, where the more sodium that gets delivered to the macula densa, uh, that causes afferent vasoconstriction at the glomerulus. And then the weird one is the glomerular tubular balance, which actually plays a pretty big role in this in this section of the kidney. And that one is kind of, rather than a very specific mechanism, it's more of a kind of a general concept that the more sodium delivery you get, the more sodium reabsorption you get. Is that a fair uh, description of that?
4: Yeah, it's just the proportionality of the reabsorption and, and, uh, and related to filtration.
1: That the more filtration, the more reabsorption. And Rose, is speci- and Rose says, we don't know exactly all the mechanisms. There's a lot of different examples of it. And he does highlight a couple of those examples here mm-hmm. in this chapter, which we will uh, call out when we see them. And then there was a in the in the TG feedback on page uh, 144. There is a typo after GFR it should be if rather than in.
3: We're not going to hold. <laughs> I found a, I found a typo on the next page. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I kind of love finding them.
7: Little Easter eggs. Just make sure you're paying attention. I thought I found a typo, but I might just be dumb. <laughs> <I don't>
5: no, <know. laughs> we'll see.
7: We'll <laughs> <laughs> see. And then, um,
1: and then I love the uh, the first full paragraph from page one forty five, in which he says that the cellular functions correlate closely with hormonal responsiveness, which is just a great way. This is how we're going to define these different cell types, and I loved it. Right, and so. Uh, in, in summary, he says that there's sodium reabsorption, potassium secretion, and that that correlates with aldosterone responsiveness. There's water reabsorption in ADH-responsive cells. There's calcium reabsorption in cells responsive to PTH and calcitriol. And, and then the last sentence says, and then there's intercalated cells that really don't fit this schema. But other than that, it really works very well.
5: But it's nice to have these frameworks. And to be honest, we um, one of the ways that I've separated out the lectures on renal physiology is like we have hormonal regulation in the kidney because I think that this is just so important to remember what are what is going on in the rest of the body and why is it that the kidney is always going to have a response and so I I I concur and that you know initially I was going to say I could not betray the fact that my favorite segment is the loop uh, of Henley, but uh, but I actually really respect this 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 part of the the hormonal regulation that we see in the collecting duct. It's just it's it's great actually. Well, and it goes back to the very
1: first episode when Melanie was talking about that she really wanted endocrinology to be part of her homeostasis two class, yes. right? Yes,
5: yeah. her class.
6: Yeah, actually, when I interviewed at UCLA, somebody I forget who interviewed me and said you know, a really strong understanding of endocrinology is going to make you a good nephrologist as well, because of all these hormonal regulations that happen.
0: And I think the more we learn about these segments, the more we see more roles for the hormone regulation to play a role in the activity of these channels. So I think the distal convoluted tubule in Table 5-1 really looks pretty boring from a hormone standpoint it's got a lot of <laughs> zeros in that line but there's there's a really nice review that came out 3 or 4 years ago from McCormick and Allison that looks at different mechanisms that regulate ncc channel activity and a lot of those zeros are actually pluses now so we can see that aldosterone increases the expression of ncc at the cell surface we see that angiotensin 2 increases the phosphorylation of ncc leading to more ncc activity and the potassium uh, can actually decrease the activity of NCC at the cell service. So I think the more we learn about these, the more layers of hormone we pile on top of it. And either for the better or for the worse for nephrology, the more we st- our diagrams start to look like endocrine flowcharts of arrows and ups and downs and hormones and effector organs.
3: But also, you know, it has to make sense, uh, you know... It- aldosterone is not going to do something in one place and and the opposite in another place. So it's it's no surprise that, that, that we would find some of these subtle effects all throughout the nephron. You know, remember that we're filtering all this, I keep harping on this, but we're filtering all this fluid to be able to get rid of our toxins. And- all this business of autoregulation, glomerular tubular balance, and tubular glomerular feedback—it's all about getting getting the volume down to something that the distal tubule can handle. You got to you got to you got to start with a lot, but you don't want to deliver a lot because now we're going to fine tune it when we get to the end there and. Uh, all that business in the beginning, except for the loop, which is all about creating a concentration gradient to have a... Um, and
1: diluting the fluid.
3: And, and a dilution segment too, yeah. And um, is about that, but it really is creating a, a low of flow so you can fine-tune this and turn whatever's coming out of the, the end of the loop at headly into urine.
6: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. He kept harping on that, how the distal convoluted tubule and the collecting duct they seem to be more sensitive than the other parts of the nephron um, and probably just because it has to do all that fine
4: tuning. It's almost like the the entire nephron works hard to kind of serve to the distal nephron, this product of diluted urine and say, okay, you decide what do I need to urinate?
3: That's exactly right. Let, let me get it all down to a small amount and decide how many hydrogen ions to put in, decide how much potassium, how much sodium to reabsorb, and how much water to reabsorb.
7: He's the guy with the tiny, tiny little tools.
3: That's why I love this part. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just <laughs> why it's so great. He talks about the, the fluid that, that leaves the, uh, the loop of Henle as you know having a sodium of about 75 which would be an osmolarity if there's nothing else in there it'd be an osmolarity of 150 and we know that the that the urine can get a heck of a lot more dilute than 150 and I, even the lowest i think one point he says the sodium would be 40 or something and that's still an osmolarity of 80 and not counting for anything else in the urine and we know that i mean i've seen urine osmolarities of, of 50 and 49 and so it's even it's even more so than than is described in this chapter i love the diluting segment
1: we are the the distal convoluted tubule which he only calls the distal tubule much to my chagrin. And uh, we have the sodium chloride co-transporter. It's indirectly powered by the sodium potassium ATPase, a similar finding that we found over and over again. Uh, but now instead of charge, we're really dependent on a low intracellular sodium concentration. That We're dependent on the sodium potassium ATPase to maintain a low sodium concentration to power sodium chloride co-transport. And he, he points out that the negative charge inside the cell from moving three sodium out and two potassium in is unimportant when you have electroneutral uh, sodium chloride co-transport. And then he, he gives, in addition to the sodium chloride co-transport, there's this much more complex system with hydrogen being secreted and sodium being reabsorbed. And then another molecule with bicarbonate being secreted and chloride being reabsorbed. And then the hydrogen and the bicarbonate that are being secreted combine to form carbonic acid and then Go back in. It's kind of like it's like that uh, we had that. What was it? The fumarate, formate, yeah, what, the fomate? formate, formate, formate. I thought. Yeah, the formate trans, uh, shuttle, and formate,
7: the, but this was the formation. <laughs> oh, this was
1: yeah. the formate shuttle in the proximal <laughs> tubule, which we weren't sure how important it was. We have a kind of a, a recreation of that, functionally very similar in the in the distal convoluted tubule. Do we? And, and he doesn't really give us a sense of how important this was. I I, I had not heard of this before. Do we get a sense of this? Is this important?
0: I didn't have a good sense of that. That felt a lot like the bicarb acetazolamide inhibitable process we talked about in the proximal tubule more than anything else to me. But uh, yeah, I didn't get a sense that this is like the critical mechanism, the way the sodium chloride co-transporter is. That's really where the money is in this segment. Yeah, I think so too.
1: Okay, and then uh, and then <laughs> Gittleman syndrome gets about a, a one sentence mention here. I have seen Gittleman. I've had a couple of patients with Gittleman syndrome in my, in, in my career. It's a pretty interesting disease to, to manage.
5: Yes, it, it, absolutely. And if you have the secret on how to successfully manage it, I'd love to know. Because even in, in these patients, th- this um, and I know that different people have different degrees, but um, the, the repletion is just so tricky, right? Because even when you try to give a little bit of magnesium, uh, you know if you give it IV if you give too much at once you're gonna uh, you're gonna lose it in the urine so it's really hard to overcome this this defect here that he's uh, that he's describing in this uh, the mutation in the sodium chloride cotransporter gene It's a it,
3: it's an incredible disease that because if it presents in adulthood yet you're yeah. born with it It's yeah. the craziest damn thing yeah. uh, I've seen many patients but and uh, I don't know what triggers them or or or, or finally sets them to diagnosis but uh, you know, I don't know how they've been living with low potassium and high bicarb for all those and a, and a relatively low blood pressure for all those years. I don't know it's it's as though there's a second hit or something because they get they make it 30 years and then they show up with Gittleman's. It's the craziest thing. It's the highest aldosterone I ever saw. They have just they
1: live with just a tremendously elevated aldosterone. And if you want to make a, a Gittleman's patient sick just tell them to restrict their sodium intake. I mean, they are so dependent on that sodium intake. I remember one of the patients told me this and, uh she was a bit embarrassed. And she says, one of the things that I like to do is I like to drink pickle juice, right? Because <laughs> you imagine anything saltier than pickle juice. And I was pursuing a diagnosis in another patient of Gittleman's. And I said, by chance, do you drink pickle juice? And her eyes popped. It was like I had I had exposed her secret that she was would never tell anybody else that she loved to drink pickle
0: juice, and I was like, oh, I, I know the diagnosis. I've got this down. This can only be one thing."
3: She's like, "Do you have some?" The crazy thing about that is that I don't I, I don't think they like pickle juice, but I think they crave salt. I mean, it's just yeah, no, that's what it is. It's a salt, I, obviously. I mean, but they crave it. It's not that they know they need salt; they crave salt. It's it gets back to some weird evolutionary thing. It, it is. It's a pike. It's you know people that eat ice. When they're iron deficient, it's a crazy damn thing.
7: Well, we better never let that mutation get get out in that community you were talking about. No salt diet tribes.
3: That would be a bad combination to <laughs> have Gittlemans in yeah. the Amazon. A bad
7: day. <laughs> and that's how Cheetos got to the Amazon.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they have pickle juice there. So Gittlemans gets about a half a sentence. Gordon syndrome gets zero sentences, as far as I can tell. And that seems relevant here too, right? That's an overactive NCC transporter with resulting hyperkalemia and hypertension. It's exactly Gittleman's turn on its head. The opposite. Um, That's right. It's
1: a gain-of-function mutation for the NCC. And it's a gain-of-function mutation
0: in the, the kinases that phosphorylate NCC or other regulatory molecules that lead to more active NCC channel uh, co-transporters being at the surface.
7: Clinically, Gordon syndrome, or pseudo-hypoaldosteronism type 2, is characterized by hyperkalemia, hypertension, and metabolic acidosis. So far, we know of four separate mutations which can cause it, all encode proteins that ubiquitinate WNK kinase 4. WNK kinase 4 inhibits the sodium chloride cotransporter to maintain a normal blood pressure and serum potassium. When the ubiquitinating proteins are not present, WNK 4 is free to inhibit the sodium chloride cotransporter in a less regulated manner. Depending on which of the four genes is mutated, the phenotype can vary from mild to severe blood pressure, potassium, and acid abnormalities. Right.
1: And I think Gordon syndrome is one of these diseases that we have really understood a lot more since the publication of this book. Like We've really mapped out the full story of, of Gordon's syndrome in a way that we didn't know in 2000.
3: You guys have uh, Gordon's patients? We said, I have one, but uh, you know, I, I mean, clinically, I've made the diagnosis. I think eventually with Gittlemans and Barters and Gordons and all these, we're going to be sending off a blood panel. And it's really a shame. I don't, you know, that'll probably make the diagnosis better, but it's really a shame because I really enjoy making these diagnosis, diagnoses clinically.
5: But you can still do it, but it's you're yeah. still going to
7: have to have the suspicion. I mean, you still have to, it's so easy to blame low potassium or high potassium or hypertension on certain things. And then if you never go, wait a second, this isn't doing exactly what I think it should be doing and kind of have that suspicion. Um, Like I was reading, you know, obviously a lot about thiazides for today and it was a lot of the, you know, hyperaldosterone patients. It's like, if you don't have that suspicion, it's probably so underdiagnosed.
1: And I don't think you're right. I think the cost of these tests is going to come down so much in the future this is going to be we a routine workup of patients that are coming to your cl- your nephrology clinic. You're going to get a yeah, you're going to get a full genetic panel on every patient that you see and we're going to uncover tons of patients that have subclinical yeah, maybe. gordons or pseudo hypoaldosteronism or whatever.
3: I, th- I still think it's a shame though cuz I know what people do. They're going to they're going to have somebody with the K of, you know, 3.7 and they're going to send off a, a whole with hypertension. They're going to send off a whole panel or they're going to have somebody with hypertension, they're going to send off a CKD panel and I mean, maybe that's a bit, the second one's a bad example, but uh, I don't know, I just think it's a shame because one thing nephrologists do is we take a puzzle, we solve a puzzle and we figure it out and we're intellectual about it and we may not be right, but we think extensively about it.
0: I want to push you on that, Roger, because I, I wonder, number one, is that going to be better for patients if we actually diagnose them with the right thing sooner? And two, I wonder if when people find these genetic things, they'll actually go and read about it. Because I feel like if you get a weird genetic test result back, you go and read about it in a way and it sticks with you more when you see a patient with it than it does if you've just read about it in a textbook and never seen someone to hang that diagnosis on. So I'm more hopeful, but I agree it's going to take a lot of the thinking about mechanism to the post-diagnosis back end as opposed to the like, I'm thinking through what's going on. I have one specific suspicion. That's what I want to go and test.
4: So one of the things that is important about this sodium chloride co-transporter, we're talk- we've been talking about Gordon, and we talked about Gittleman a little bit, which are the sort of the inherited or genetic uh, d- disorders that the damage or produce gain you know, of function of this transporter. And we it, it, we always relate the Gittleman with thiazide. And I know Anna's going to ex- expand on thiazide, but, you know, we try to teach, you know, remember Gittleman is like a, being on a thiazide. Um, and one thing that, uh, you know, David Ellison in Portland did this, has done a lot of work on the distal tubule, and, and he has this nature medicine uh, report, uh, I think over 10 years ago now, where they elegantly showed that the hyperkalemia that we see with calcium urine inhibitors, uh, cyclosporin and tacrolimus, is really like a Gordon. Essentially, the urine uh, inhibitors interfere with the wing kinases that that we know from Gittleman, but just directed in the opposite direction and ended up having an overexpression of the sodium chloride co-transporters and it explains a whole phenotype that we see with cyclosporine and tacrolimbos where patients have sodium reabsorption, hypertension, and, and they're in hyperkalemia. So what I try to uh, teach the fellows is that remember Gittleman with thiazides the same way. You have to remember Gordon, where you may or may not see as a, a calcineurin inhibitor. And that way they can relate a drug with a genetic disorder, and kind of uh, help them remember that important uh, effect on the transporter, and it, and it gives you the antidote, right?
1: Because once you understand that, you're like, okay, I got to give this guy a thiazide, and they're they're hyperkalemic. Yeah, so, it, it,
4: it, you know, we have a, a heavy transplant uh, hepatology service uh, at auctioner, and, and a lot of these patients are on tacrolimus, and they come hyperkalemic, and they have they very quickly jump to put these patients on patiromer, or now. Uh, zirconium cyclosilicate, uh, a little bit of kayaxle here and there, even fluorine sometimes.
5: I've seen fluorine use so much. We
4: off all those medications and a simple thiazide, or even a loop diuretic. Uh, it just corrects uh, to a great extent this uh, uh, refractory hyperkalemia, and it comes down to understanding the mechanism that uh, that Ellison and his lab uh, reported a few years ago.
3: Wow, that's fantastic I never really thought about it that way and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that and I'm gonna claim that it's my own so. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but anybody that knows me that should not come as a surprise would a thighs be better than a loop then based on what you well theoretically
4: it is but you know I I have had patients that um, they were also a damatose that I gave them a loop diuretic and you know I think you know we know that loop diuretics are just so you know, potent diuretics that you can probably overwhelm the distal convoluted tubule with how much sodium delivery uh, occurs when you do it. But yeah, you know, if a patient doesn't have edema, you could probably just try chlortholidin 25 milligrams first and see what happens. But you have to communicate with the transplant teams, whatever is hepatology or, or heart failure or, or heart transplant, because As you know, they they are going to react very quickly to stop the diuretic if the creatinine goes from 1.8 to 1.9 or 2.0.
5: Even if the tech level is like 15.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So you have to really communicate with them and and kind of explain what the rationale is.
5: Then after
4: the, the Gittleman sentence... Uh, (laughs) there's a a nice bit
1: about sodium reabsorption is dependent on sodium delivery. And he says this is an example of glomerular tubular balance, that if you have more filtration and you get more sodium delivery, you're going to get more sodium reabsorption. And this is a phenomenon we see a lot in patients on chronic loop diuretics. And he says that this is one of the, you know, this is one of the breaking phenomenons that prevent your loop diuretics from getting this diuresis because you get all this excess sodium delivery to the distal convoluted tubule and you get excess sodium reabsorption. But then he talks, I thought really nice about the maladaptive aspect of this, that if patients are on a high sodium diet, you will also get increased sodium delivery here. In a situation where you don't want increased sodium reabsorption, you will get that excess sodium reabsorption here. Uh, so I thought that was that was interesting because Roger keeps talking about how smart the kidney is, and you know here's an example: the kidney falling down on its face right here.
4: It gets a pass, but this is kind of goes along with what you're saying, Joel. That a, a distal tubule that is is being fed with a lot of sodium uh, and chloride from that is not reabsorbed in the loop of Henley when you have a patient on a loop diuretic. Is once again David Ellison had this elegant observation of the hypertrophy of the distal tubular cells and actually overexpression of the sodium chloride cotransporters. Essentially, these cells beef up because of all the sodium being delivered to them and start hypertrophying with nice immunohistochemistry images and increasing the reabsorption and making the loop diuretics ineffective uh, in, in these patients.
0: So if folks haven't seen Ellison's New England Journal review on the treatment of diuretic-resistant heart failure... It is outstanding. It's maybe two years old now, but it's totally worth a read and talks about these concepts of the breaking phenomenon and threshold dosing, uh, and particularly this like hypertrophy of the distal convoluted tubule.
2: So just a reminder, I love all the clinical connections, but we're going to see these things again. The Black Book, which we're using, has an entire chapter on edematous states and diuretics, which... Earlier versions didn't have, and they also will get Gordon Syndrome in like page 700, and, and we'll get Gittleman again too.
3: Good, so. good to know. It's,
2: it's too bad. I was planning a comprehensive
1: review. Today.
3: That's a year and a half from now, anyway. So, what's the difference? It'll be, yeah. it'll be,
0: oh, i, I forgotten that. That's
1: okay. a good point. I that's feel bad for those fellows. Hopefully, board. that'll be right before yeah, my sure
0: board. For board review, will be like really upset that we won't get to Gordon Syndrome until like their recertification exam. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, he said and then back to the the glomerular tubular balance, he said the key sites for regulations are they going to be the proximal and the collecting tubule. So the proximal tubule and the collecting tubule and they'll be regulated by aldosterone, angiotensin 2 and ANP. Uh and then he mentions water handling in the distal convoluted tubule it says it it's water impermeable and it's unresponsive to ADH and it's still another member of the diluting segment.
7: I have a quick question about the feedback. So do you remember in the first episode when we were talking about people coming out of the ocean and how it's an evolutionary advantage to have mechanisms to hold on to salt? And Melanie said, you know, really the only mechanism we have to get rid of salt is AMP, which is kind of weak. So I'm just trying to figure out why the why is it evolutionarily advantageous to have this, like, hypertrophy is not the right word, but you know what I mean, hypertrophy of salt handling with increased sodium delivery. Is that a mechanism you think that evolved to hold on to salt or what do you think that is?
1: Well, I think it's, again, it's uh, my personal thought is that this is, again, part of reducing the volume of fluid that's getting to, to the very end to the cortical collecting duct and medullary collecting duct where you do the fine tuning. And and it works most of the time, but clearly with a very high salt diet, it seems just it seems to be problematic here.
3: And that's why I look at it. We did not evolve on a four gram sodium diet, much less an eight gram sodium diet. So we're very good at retaining sodium. It's, the irony is we're not that good at getting rid of sodium. I've said this before, but why should somebody with a GFR of 20 have edema?
1: But, but rewind, we're pretty good at it, right? Like you... We all eat eight grams of sodium, and most of us don't have hypertension, right? We don't develop hypertension until actually quite late in life, probably later in life than we were designed to live.
3: That's fine, but if you're, but if you let's say you have a GFR of twenty mLs a minute, you're still, you know, filtering twenty-eight liters a day or some, you know, ridiculous number, and um, you know, twenty-eight liters is still twenty-eight times one hundred and forty. It's thousands of milliequivalents, and yet to be in a positive sodium balance, you're probably retaining. Half a gram a day. All you got to do is let a sodium go by every 30 minutes, you know? It's, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand why we have to have edema. With, with proteinuria, I can understand because that gets turned on, you know, the ENAC gets turned on by proteinuria, but just by but CKD alone. It's a great mystery to me, and the only thing I can understand is that you know we 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 really are very good at retaining sodium, but we never we never really thought about not having to retain sodium. Patients with chronic kidney disease develop an edema. It's to me, you know, if I have a patient with chronic
4: kidney disease and is significantly edematous, I'm going to search very hard for heart failure or nephrotic range proteinuria or liver disease. Chronic kidney disease. Without overt proteinuria, without all other systemic involvement, I don't think those patients are particularly edematous. Yes, they tend to retain water, and we think that's is part of the reason why they tend to be hypertensive. But clinically, when you examine those patients, uh, they don't really exhibit the degree of edema that you would see in, with in other scenarios.
3: I mean, uh, that's a great. I mean, uh, you, you may be right. Maybe that's simple. But uh, you know, we've seen the various patients that that have. Nephrotic range proteinuria, they don't have edema and they've got mild proteinuria, they have edema with the same GFR. I mean, I hope you're right because I like that explanation that it's not about the GFR, it's about something else. It just seems that there's always some. There's always a lot of cases where it's just not explained. I think that I see tons of patients where it's drug induced. It's absolutely missed. People assume it's the CKD and it's their CCB or the hydralazine or something else.
1: Okay, last bit on the distal convoluted tubule was in, uh, dealing with calcium. Uh, DCT has calcium resorption capability and that is increased by PTH. So in the presence of PTH, you're going to enhance calcium reabsorption. And he kind of walks through a story where if you have increased calcium intake, that will cause your serum calcium to climb up a little bit. That will suppress your PTH and then result in decreased calcium reabsorption here. And then he emphasized and leans into that the distal convoluted tubule is the site in the kidney where sodium and calcium reabsorption are dissociated. And he points to thiazide-type diuretics. is a beautiful example of that, where you get increased sodium excretion and increased calcium reabsorption. And we have a special treat tonight. We sent Anna to do her homework on thiazide-type diuretics. Anna, why don't you teach us us about thiazides?
7: There's a whole chapter on thiazides later, so I was kind of trying to figure out how to um, bite off this whale because it's huge. And what I, what I was thinking about as a cohesive theme was the reason I love thiazides is because they're so darn useful. Roger also loves them and, and sent me some thoughts earlier today about his, his reasons, what he thinks about thiazides. And we were talking about, um, the all hat study and how, you know, you would think that based on that evidence, everyone would be on a thiazide. All
1: hats the biggest. Baddest hypertension trial ever done, right? Yeah.
7: So it was the search for what everyone – what should we, in most people with hypertension, be prescribing as a first-line agent? Should we do a beta blocker? Should we do an
1: ACE inhibitor? Well, not beta blockers. Beta blockers were not one of the No, no,
7: no. I'm not saying – I'm just saying to answer the question of – yeah, sorry, I shouldn't have put it that way. But um, trying to figure out what would be the ideal first-line agent for blood pressure lowering.
0: I've got the arms up here. Yeah, it's a 40,000-person trial with four arms, chlorothalidone, amlodipine, lisinopril, and doxazacin is the fourth arm. So uh,
7: vasodilation, ACE inhibition, thiazide diuretic, calcium channel blockers, and like Josh said, huge cohorts. And so the outcomes that they looked at were mortality and primary outcome was much better in the chlorothaladone group.
1: Oh, no, no, no. That is usually what people say, but that's actually not what happened, right? Because first off, one arm doesn't even make it to the finish line, right? Daxesa drops out early because of. That's why we don't talk about failure. it, and right, so that, <laughs> that's why nobody uses it anymore, right? Because it, it it failed brilliantly. It never deserved right. to be in there. And then calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, and hydrochlorothiazide and chlorthalidone all cross the finish line with the same mortality. But on secondary, on some of the secondary outcomes, correct, uh, clothalidone wins, right? Yep. Uh, heart failure, stroke, I think were the two that it beats, ACE inhibitors and calcium channel blockers. And the other important thing is, at the time the study was done, a, the ACE inhibitor, if I remember correctly, the ACE inhibitor and the calcium channel blocker were both on patent, so it was the generic tied the two expensive drugs, and that was the headline in the New York.
2: Tell conference. us more, Pa.
7: I did not know that. That's interesting.
1: And well, and the and the other important difference was the study was designed for all Forearms to have the same blood pressure, right? The idea was, if you get to blood pressure goal, is there a difference in mortality with these different drugs? And what happened is that the clothalidone is such a good blood pressure, they couldn't reduce it enough. And it had a lower blood pressure by, I don't know, two or three points compared to the amylodipine and the lisinopril group. And the important legacy is that JNC7, which was the hypertension guidelines for a decade, maybe, were were really written by the authors of Hat, And so the lessons of Hat then became the guidelines that we all use to treat patients.
7: But, asterisk, you don't see as much thiazide use as you would think you would. And the reason that we were discussing is that there are so many side effects. But what I really like about thiazides is that, number one, to understand them and discuss them, you have to really understand the physiology of the segment. Which I find exciting and nerdy, but also, um, that the side effects make them so useful for so many different things. So, you know, you can use them in stone disease. You can use them in diuretic resistance. You can use them, I mean, just for blood pressure is great. But just, you know, if you, if you say like, oh, it's a diuretic, um, and you're just thinking about how much it's going to make someone pee, not that impressive compared to, say, a loop, but they're so darn useful for other things. And so that's what I really like about them. So what I kind of wanted to talk about was the, and this was something that I hadn't really Organized this way mentally before, but what Roger was pointing out was the four um, hypers or hypes of thiazides. Mm-mm. What is
1: this? No, what is it?
6: No, I've never heard this. Yeah.
7: Hypokalemia, hyperglycemia, hyperuricemia, and hypercalcemia. So I didn't, I, like, I guess I knew those separately, but I didn't think about them that way.
3: And it's not subtle. I mean, that's, you know, I think that that, that may be why they're not as popular. Because, you know, Alhat says that's, that's, that's the drug we should use. But when you talk to internists, they're not putting people primarily on thiazides, right?
5: I don't know that it's this. I I think I think the hyperuricemia certainly the gout is a big reason, but I think the number one reason is because they all think that it they everybody's gonna get hypo and yeah, this right. is a very very yeah a, pe- a lot of people think uh, blame the side diuretics for hyponatremia and so everybody gets taken off taken off it and then the it, it, try to restart it. It's hard, right? Plus,
7: there's other boxes you have to tick. The person's diabetic. You have to have them on an ACE if they're you know if they have heart failure. You have to- have them on an ACE and a beta blocker. So there's a, like a bunch of other boxes to tick first and maybe some people don't have the blood pressure left for a thiazide, I don't know.
6: Yeah, I think that's a good point is that there's a lot of diabetes and so oftentimes they're also hypertensive. So ACE tends to be the first line agent for that reason. And I'll say like, I mean, definitely being in the South and in the desert, sometimes people shy away from thiazides just because they're worried about quote unquote dehydrating the patient, dehydrating uh, the little lady and things like that. So, so, I mean, it is something to be aware of, but I- Agree, I don't think that that should negate making it your first line agent.
3: When I was a resident, everybody was on diazide and maxide. And they were, that was like thiazide and I think triamterene, you know, and, and Everybody had that. And then hat com- comes out and it says the, the thiazide should be a first-line therapy and <laughs> nobody's using that anymore. I mean, I don't see it used very much anymore.
5: It's one of the first things that I do in my patients who come in at- with CKD and like they- and-, and that have resistant hypertension is making sure that they're on... Um, and my-, my thiazide of choice is chlorothalidone. I just love it. Yeah. I- and I also think that, it- you know, thiazides get the- this bad rap, like, oh, you can't use them at lower GFRs. And I understand. Yes, you, you know, it's not... You yes, know, they the, do. The rationale, absolutely, they absolutely work even at low, very low GFRs. And I've fallen into that, and
3: I've, you know, even at this old age, I'm still learning. And I've, I fell into that for a long time, and I just keep reading about how that's wrong, and so I've, I've. I've adopted that. So, Anna, why do you think chlorothaladone is... Everyone's shaking their head. It's 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 the one. Is it's half-life? Why is it? What do you think?
1: It's half-life is incredibly long, right? So the important right. thing is, hydrochlorothiazide is like Lasix. It's like six yeah. hours. And chlorothaladone is three days. I might be right. wrong on that. It's a long time. It might not be three days, but it's a long time.
7: <laughs> it's a long time. <laughs> yeah, so it's longer. In
1: 1998... The New England Journal of Medicine did a review article on diuretics by Craig Brader. As part of that article, there was uh, the half-life of a number of common diuretics. So remember, we typically expect it to take four half-lives for a drug to be completely eliminated. And so, furosemide has a half-life in normal subject of one and a half to two hours. Multiply that by. Four, and that's where you get the last six hours for furosemide. Bumetanide, half-life one hour. Torsamide, three to four hours. Now the thiazides, hydrochlorothiazide, half-life is two and a half hours. So completely eliminated after 10 hours. And chlorthalidone, half-life 24 to 55 hours. So that'll be 4 to 10 days to completely eliminate that. Indapamide, 15 to 25 hours. Amiloride, 17 to 26 hours. Really long half-life. Um, and then that's significantly prolonged in patients with renal insufficiency up to 100 hours. And then spironolactone, 1.5 hours.
4: Yeah, I mean, the the that stands out as a long-acting and extremely effective, Mm -hmm. even in patients with advanced chronic kidney disease, even in patients with acute kidney injury is metolazone. Um, Metolazone um, is a medication that you can add uh, only 2.5 milligrams three times weekly, as opposed to five milligrams daily. And you can see a patient really having a 50% increase in urine output when you add it to a loop diuretic. And that could happen in a patient with really poor kidney function. So I think it's, it's a misperception that thiazides are ineffective when the kidney function declines.
7: Well, two things I was reading about on that topic were that number one, and that I didn't know this, was that thiazides have some vasodilatory effect, and that's why they can still be effective at, at low GFR, and I had I had no idea. Again, I think, especially as a trainee, you think about a diuretic and you think about it as being volume responsive, and we all know that after a certain period, you're not getting a whole lot of volume off with a thiazide, so it's like, well, you know, it just kind of seems puny, but in reality, it didn't sound like from the reading i did that the mechanisms of that are really well understood but i thought that was fascinating and the other thing was that metolazone i also didn't know this that the reason people use it in heart failure so much is that it has less renin stimulation i didn't really understand why that was or how that happened or if that's true yeah
6: i have heard that before but i can't remember why to be honest but i have
7: Wait, i thought that stimulation was a volume effect
3: well, I can't even imagine. I mean, just because uh, rarely are you going to use metolosone by itself. And so you're usually using it with a loop, and a loop's going to increase chloride delivery, and, and that's going to stimulate renin release. So I, I haven't heard that. But, you know, what Juan said is like the secret. It's, it's like the the secret of nephrology is that two and a half, three times a week. Nephrologists, you know, we, we give volume, we take volume, you know, we don't mess around with 500 cc's. It's always oh, two liters of this and one liter of that and four liters of this. And two and a half milligrams sounds homeopathic, but boy, in the right situation. And we're talking about three times a week, it can make a huge difference, and that's actually what I start with. The only reason that sometimes I don't is I'm afraid people can't get it straight. But to take this little pill Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and it's absolutely incredible what the synergistic effect of those two diuretics going together do.
4: Yeah, I actually have that saved as my you know automatic uh, prescriptions on Epic on electronic medical records, and I also have one which is 1.25 twice weekly, <laughs> which I've. Oh my God. But it's, it's just something that's an important teaching point because uh, I have, you know, sometimes discussing a case with a trainee, the trainee, okay, let's add metolosin, how much are you going to do? Well, 10 milligrams once a day. All right, make sure you check a BNP in seven days. Let's say the BUN is going to be 132 or 145. You add on 10 milligrams once a day to a patient on a loop with a creatinine of three you know it's just it can be very very effective and trigger patient to the other side of uh, perenal azotemia yeah
0: I, I had a patient who i added metolazone to i forget if it was daily or every other day and drove his BUN up into the mid of 140s and then on his way in he was floridly uremic falling asleep at the wheel of the car <laughs> huge asterixis on exam and it's like oh my god I can't believe someone let me do this he's
7: like I love that matola that was
0: and great he's like well I was gaining weight and my weight wasn't dropping off so I just kept taking more of it and he's like no don't do that I tell my
3: patients it's their booster they like to think of it as their booster so they take their Lasix but the, this this other pill is their booster one and a half twice a week one I've, I've learned something new I, I, I've got to try that one
0: it's anecdotal evidence only Roger don't, don't uh...
7: <laughs> why don't you just put them on chlorothalidone as well.
0: Like what's I think the, we can use chlorothalidone. We just have to use higher doses more no, often. I've done used that before. To yeah. using as folks GFR is lower, but I think there's no reason it should be any less effective than metolazone.
3: Right. Yeah, and I I've never even thought about that because I always go to metolazone too. And you know, there's this business where you're supposed to you know give these diuretics, give them metolazone. A half hour before the loop an hour before yes. the, the, the loop diuretic, which is ridiculous it may, it may be valid for the very first dose, but metolazone also has a half life of like forty-eight hours. So after the first dose, it's really ridiculous. But I, I was gonna I get a kick out of it when people write, you know, 30 minutes before the Lasix, they gotta get the metolazone.
2: I looked into this once and it turns out it comes from a literature where you were giving um, the Lasix mm. IV and the metolazone orally. And so there it makes a little sense because you want to be able to ingest the metolazone and get it, you know, going before you gave, you know, the short acting loop diarrhea. Right.
1: When they order it BID, they're, that's just confessing that they don't know what the drug <laughs> is
3: right <laughs> that's a red flag right
0: <laughs> i think at the end of the day if you can find someone who talks about you the way a nephrologist talks about thiazide type diuretics you are a really lucky person mm-hmm. uh, we are all in love with these drugs and their mechanism and their efficacy in these patients with these various conditions and i think it's it's a really cool thing to, to see that shared among all of us
2: but not just in love we're also like a little fearful of them yeah, I always joke that um, thiazides are like the Inspector Clouseau of diuretics. Like they kind of get the job done, but there's like all this collateral damage.
6: I think another thiazide that doesn't get enough love is endapamide. Like I've never used endapamide, but I mean, I I know it's a good diuretic. I've just
3: yeah, never used it. If you start procrening endapamide,
6: you're part of
1: the kidney stone club, right? The, the kidney stone people,
3: they love endapamide. <laughs> yeah. Anna, do you know why uric acid goes up so much more with uh, thiazides as opposed to...
2: A couple little like
7: tidbits for the fellows, which you guys probably all know, but if there's fellows listening, I thought these were all cool. Number one, the hyperuricemia um, is because uh, it shares an organic ion transporter with the thiazides.
3: Yeah, but Lasix is... But furosemide is an organic transporter. That's They all have to get transported in the proximal tubule by an organic transporter, then float downstream and work on the luminal side, so...
7: Since step 1, we've all heard that thiazides can precipitate gout flares and raise serum uric acid. But why does this occur? In the proximal tubule, there's an organic anion transporter 1 on the basolateral membrane and an organic anion transporter 4 on the apical membrane. Thiazide diuretics are anionic and are exchanged by the organic anion transporter 1 and 4 for the anionic urate, and the net effect is decreased urate in the lumen and increased urate in the blood.
6: Is this sort of like, why we use it for DI? Like it causes this mild volume contraction, which causes more proximal tubule reabsorption, which would cause hyperuricemia?
1: That, that may well be, yeah. So Anna is right, and so is Amy. Both comp- competition for urate secretion with the thiazide-type diuretics, as well as volume deficiency, plays a role in the hyperuricemia seen with thiazides. Contrary to common thought, loop diuretics are just as likely, or in some studies more likely to cause gout flares than thiazide type diuretics. And so Roger's concern that this mechanism would apply equally to loop diuretics doesn't hold water.
7: DI Stone's Gordon's All these things where you're stuck and you're like, huh, what about thiazide? Very cool. Diuretic resistance. What about a thiazide? Also the best for blood pressure. I mean, what more do you need? Plus, the other things that I thought were really cool were that the unmasking that you mentioned of, of hyperaldo and of hyper uh, primary hyperparathyroidism.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, walk through that. Those are important. Those are important.
7: Yeah. So these also were not concepts. Roger's like, are you going to talk about this? I'm like, yeah, of course, as soon as I look it up. Because um, I just <laughs> haven't been in this game that long. But yeah, as we talked about, more salt delivery <laughs> hey, today. Google and I are like this, though. And, you know, I looked it up on UpToDate. So I consider that uh, the supplementary tables of this book, because Bud, Bud Rose also made up to date. So I'm I consider it the supplementary tables and the supplementary reading. So that's good. Um, that's good. Real good. So so he was talking. So Roger was mentioning hyperaldo being unmasked um, by by diuretic use, and and it turns out that that also can happen with high salt intake, um, and that you have to be really careful when you start giving people um, with primary uh, hyperaldosteronism uh, when they start increasing the salt in their diet, which it turns out that, you know, the more sodium delivery you have, and then that can potentiate the hypokalemia um, that you see with thiazide use. And I thought that was really fascinating. If you start somebody on on a thiazide and then you suddenly see their uh, potassium just plummet much more than you thought it would, then potentially they have, yeah.
4: We, you mentioned earlier uh, that the thiazide and hypercalcemia, and I want to just ask the group about this because... Uh, you know, you read this everywhere that one of the postulated mechanisms for thiazide induced hypercalcemia is because of uh, stimulation of the volume depletion leading to reactive increase in proximal to reabsorption. So you don't deliver, uh, so you end up reabsorbing more calcium. And I've never been happy with that explanation because the same people who say that it is people that say that, well, you know, if you are on a thiazide chronically, you're. Eventually, volume uh, uvolemic So you're now volume depleted, and that's not why it works as an antihypertensive. It works because it's a vasodilate. So yeah. So what is it? Are you volume depleted with the thiazide, and that's why you become hypercalcemic, or you're not? Uh, so in in this book has this nice uh, cartoon about the relationship between the sodium chloride reabsorption and the calcium reabsorption. So I kind of, to me, that makes more sense. This this interesting mechanism how sodium chloride is reabsorbed, and if you have a thiazide in block it, you kind of depend upon this sodium-calcium exchanger in the basolateral side that is going to pull sodium and kind of feed the pump, and that essentially drags calcium uh, through the apical side and, and promotes more calcium reabsorption. So to, to
3: me that that seems much more uh, compelling story. Well, I, I, the, the 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 volume issue is really lame. So I totally agree with you. I don't know what it is, but the volume is totally lame. But what's really interesting is it seems very idiosyncratic. And I, I see a lot of hypercalcemia from thiazides, but but a gazillion people on thiazides and they don't. And you know what's the difference there? Is it is it something that they have a second hit, or is they have got a little. Is it bringing out their mild hyperparathyroidism or
7: so Roger, there was a study because you asked there was a study in a journal of endocrinology, I think it was twenty sixteen, and there was a group that did a study in this basically they just took a small town and they looked at everyone in the small town who was on a thiazide and all the people who became hypercalcemic. And all the people who were hypercalcemic, they stopped the thiazide. And seventy one percent of the people who were hypercalcemic stayed hypercalcemic once the thiazide was stopped.
3: Yeah, that's fantastic.
1: Well what's the conclusion? So what's the conclusion from that? Help me out
7: that it's unmasking some mild primary hyperparathyroidism.
2: Yeah. So if you check their parathyroid hormone level, those hypercalcemic patients, you'll find that they are not appropriately suppressed. Right. So indeed you're unmasking mild hyperpara. And fun fact, that's on my final every year.
5: Wow. (laughs) Well, now we know.
0: (laughs) This is officially a high yield podcast now.
5: I give the PTH and it's like
2: 65, you know, which is inappropriate for
4: hypercalcemia. This is really enlightening because, it you know, what you're saying, Melody and, and you, Anna, it, it just comes all together. And and what you said, Roger, about not seeing it much or, or not predicting who gets it is because what we were, uh, what I was mentioning earlier, how uh, the... The sodium calcium transporter and the sodium calcium exchanger interaction works. Eventually, what happens is that uh, the apical calcium channel that the book mentions sort of a voltage channel in this chapter, but now we know that it's called the TRIP V5 channel, TRP V5 channel. That channel is abregulated by PTH. So that makes complete sense that if you have a hyperparathyroidism where your PTH is amplified and you get on a thiazide, that's a recipe for the perfect storm to just reabsorb a lot of calcium.
2: Except that um, I, I'm pretty sure that knockouts of that transporter, if, if you give patients a thiazide without that transporter, you still get, I'm going to say something different, you still get the desired hypocalceria
0: you can still get hypercalcemia knockout mice so that's in that ellison article that that melanie sent out really helpfully and and we'll put in the show notes
4: without the trip v5 Jen?
0: knockouts of trip v5 still get hypercalcemic so but they
4: have all their eyes of V five. yeah
0: even someone as smart as dave ellison still thinks that it's volume contraction He doesn't have another idea beyond that. So
2: I know I love that transporter. It was so elegant to think that, you know, sort of magically it's favored when sodium and chloride uh, transport is blocked. But
6: yeah, but I think also the book mentions that whenever you block that transporter, there's the uh, NCC, there's also passive reabsorption as well that happens because of the electrochemical gradient. And so that may be why when you have knockout trip B5, they you're still having that movement of calcium. Okay, that's fair.
7: And I want to just, um, because I'm in love with your modulin, remember that when we talked about the thick ascending limb, your modulin actually stops calcium reuptake hmm. via trpv 5
2: I did not know that.
7: When serum calcium is high, more uromodulin is, synth- is, is transported to the membrane and then that hmm. moves downstream and in the distal convoluted tubule inhibits calcium reuptake via trpv 5
3: So instead of sending everybody for genetic testing, which I'm really against, we should get, we should have a thiazide tolerance test. So if your potassium goes down too much and your bicarb goes up too much, then you're, you should be evaluated for hyperaldosteronism. If your calcium goes up, you should be evaluated for hyperparathyroidism. <laughs>
1: I like and it. I think one of the things that David Goldfarb mentioned to me when I was talking about this hypercalcemia that we see with thiazide, he leaned into the fact that the hypercalcemia tends to be mild. It is almost always asymptomatic in these patients. And putting them on the thiazide reduces their urine calcium and probably prevents them from the stones that you might be worried about. And he just says, ignore it. Wow. Right? Don't send them for surgery. Don't wow. send them for evaluation.
3: Don't stop the thiazide?
1: Don't stop the thigh unless unless they start getting symptomatic. And it kind of made a lot of sense to me, right? If you're controlling the blood pressure, you're not getting hypertension from the hypercalcemia. You're not getting the stones. You're not getting the constipation. If they're doing fine, roll with it.
2: It's funny that you say that and quote, David, because earlier I would have told you my secret for treating Gittleman syndrome is to ignore the magnesium. So... (laughs) (laughs) That's
5: <laughs> I like this. Everyone gets
2: one electrolyte. They're just going to be like, you know what?
7: I'm
1: going pass this one.
2: You know, there is no magnesium chapter in this book. And I think that's why I am not that great at magnesium.
0: I think this is a segment where we probably should have like two sentences on magnesium because there is this TRPM6 channel that's important for magnesium reabsorption.
2: Josh was like lying in wait for that.
0: In the distal convoluted tubule. No, I, I just think, you know. So I originally, like, true story, the first time I went to this book, I think, was when I was a fourth-year medical student on a nephrology elective and assigned to research hypomagnesemia. And I'm like, great, I'll just read the magnesium chapter. And it's like there's no magnesium chapter, so you're going to have to read a lot more than one chapter to find the right section. But it was it was very helpful to have to read all these sections and really appreciate uh, the text and, and the writing and the mechanism piece. Um, but one piece where it'd be nice to talk about magnesium would be here, um, where in the distal convoluted tubule, there's a trip M6 channel that helps allow magnesium from the urinary space into the distal convoluted tubule cell. Um, and so in folks who have uh, loss of function of that channel, they end up with hypomagnesemia because of magnesium loss in the urine. A lot like those uh, Claudin uh, mutant folks we talked about back. Yeah, and this is actually extremely
4: relevant that uh, that I learned through a clinical case, not really a genetic mutation. We have uh, chemotherapy agents these days. Uh, that are um, monoclonal antibodies against the epidermal growth factor, which turns out to be the regulator of this TRIP-M6 channel. So drugs like cetuximab, and there's another one called panitumumab that attack this epidermal growth factor, and that essentially uh, inhibits the insertion of this TRIP-M6 channels and cause profound, relentless hypomagnesemia. Uh, you need one case to learn this for the rest of your career. These patients have to be on intravenous magnesium twice weekly on top of the oral supplementation. Really incredible. This is, for me, it was an eye-opener how this channel uh, is important because historically, when I read this book, I thought it was all about a paracellular transport and the loop of Henley. And,
3: and of course, it's it was not really the whole story. That's a really good point because magnesium, my experience, the same thing. If you've got magnesium wasting, you almost can't. You can't chase it enough. But what else is there that you can't replace? I mean, I don't want to get into the whole concept of salt wasting right now, but we've talked about how many parts of the nephron I mean, think of a diuretic, you know. You put somebody on a diuretic, but other parts of the nephron kicks in and, and basically you don't salt waste. And to have salt wasting, that means you have to have ten different areas of the nephron be affected. That's why I don't generally believe in salt wasting. I certainly don't believe in cerebral salt wasting, but I've seen salt wasting from severe chemotherapy-induced tubular damage. But and potassium wasting, you know, usually you can get around that, but nothing is worse than magnesium wasting. It may be because it's one area that once that's affected, you're absolutely... You know, up the creek.
7: I remember seeing this when I was on Onc Ward's as a resident, uh, but that was from platinum-based chemotherapy. But really profound, and, and they, the, my team wanted to like discharge someone with a really, really low magnesium. So I was like, we should probably like address this before we send
3: home. But you know, you can only you can only give so much because it causes diarrhea, and it's it's a real problem. I mean, can you imagine being on IV infusions the rest of your life because this part of your nephron is defective. It's terrible.
5: No, absolutely. And this is what I was trying to get at earlier, that I mean, if any of you have been able to treat severe hypomagnesemia successfully, like I'd like to know tricks because we're doing. You know, I've tried everything, and I and powders and things like that, but it's just really, okay. really. We're
1: difficult. an hour and a half in, and we haven't got out of the distal convoluted tubule. This is absurd, All right, guys, Let's
5: go. Let's go. And, yeah, come on. We no, have to. You move guys on.
1: gotta. <laughs> I mean, because honestly, we can't have a six-hour episode. Okay, so let's move on. We're going to skip the connecting segment. Nobody, nobody give me.
5: Nobody t- even t- mention
1: t- it. I'm not doing the connecting segment. Okay. Principal cells. So we're in the, we're in the uh, cortical collecting duct. There are two cell types. There's a principal cell and there's an intercalated cell. Principal cell is going to do sodium reabsorption and potassium excretion. And also water reabsorption are its primary, are its primary roles here. And really, again, like we've seen over and over again, the energy for this, for all this process is generated by your uh, sodium potassium ATPase. But for the first time, the sodium reabsorption here is not driven by the sodium concentration, but by The negative charge that's generated by moving three sodium out and two potassium in. So you get this negative charge inside the cell, which is the electrical gradient that drives sodium reabsorption. And ROSE leans into this as being super important because we're able to get tubular sodium concentration down below... The sodium concentration that's inside, intracellular content, right? The interest, you know, if it was going down a chemical gradient, you would be able to get the tubular sodium concentration below the intracellular sodium concentration. And I thought this, this was something I had never thought about. I always, when I always taught, I used to talk, oh, it's an electrical chemical gradient that's driving sodium reabsorption. And he says, no, nah, no, nah, 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 not so
3: much. Yeah. I, I, that was kind of new to me too. And I, I mean, I should have known it, but it's really fascinating because to think that the urine sodium is, is actually less than the, than the cellular sodium, so you have to have it driven by the charge. Very, very interesting.
1: Okay, so the movement of sodium through uh, the epithelial sodium channel leaves a negative charge in the tubule. And we've gotten a lot of negative charges, and we've got to keep checking. We've got a, a negative charge inside the cell that drives sodium in, then you get a negative charge inside the tubule, which weirdly now draws potassium out, Right. So it's weird to think the negative charge inside the cell is enough to pull sodium in, but not enough to hold potassium in because the potassium. I guess it's because of a very high concentration of potassium, I think is what's going on there. Intracellular potassium is very high.
3: Exactly. I think of sodium as, yeah, sodium's electrical and, and potassium's concentration. But, the, but it's important that the, there's a
1: negative charge in the tubule, right? Because we have the, the electrogenic movement of sodium leaves a negative charge in the tubule. And then there's two things that absorb that negative charge there's the paracellular reabsorption of chloride and the secretion of potassium and so you know and again i think this is important to teach and it's going to be it's going to come back when we talk about hypokalemia or potassium secretion is that Chloride reabsorption competes with potassium secretion, right? They're both chasing after that negative charge. You got know, one or the other. You, know, you can't you can't optimize for both.
2: And can I add one more layer to that?
1: Andy, a million layers. Melody. Okay,
2: so one of the things if I were Miss Frizzle, you know, Magic School bus. Are you not? Tell us the truth. And you were driving like up into the duct, what you would see is like a cobblestone that the Principal cells and the intercalated cells are all intermixed, and that's really important because the uh, sort of milieu or environ or whatever you want to say of that negative charge from the principal cell, the intercalated cell benefits too, and that will favor then the action that the intercalated cell can do. Yes, they have ATPases on the luminal surface, but it's so handy if it's also Negative. It still favors that. And I, and I love that. And I think that comes back over and over again. When you think about losses of potassium, you're always losing hydrogen also. And, you know, when Anna was talking about the thiazides and all the things that they do, I always like to think about the fact that you lose both K and hydrogen. And so patients tend, not the ones with hyperaldo, but Other patients tend to have a little hypokalemia. And a little metabolic alkalosis, and it's just so beautifully balanced because of that setup.
7: Melanie, thank you so much for pointing that out. Usually, the schema of the nephron, which I almost always pull out when I'm reading these things, shows like an intercalated cell and then a principal cell, and it'll have like one before the other, and it makes you think like they're sequential. I know, like intellectually, that they're not, but you, it's hard not to think of it that way.
4: It, it is also, Melanie, related to the opposite in terms of hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis. That traditionally is viewed as sort of a shift, and due to the pH, and plasma, and it really comes down to the nephron here. You explain how hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis can go together as you reabsorb sodium. Well, the opposite happens if your distal convoluted tubule is reclaiming the sodium so that there's less sodium being delivered to the collecting duct. So you have inability to dump potassium, but you also have some impaired ability to dump acid, and then you develop a, a touch of metabolic acidosis, which is what we see in these patients on calcineurin inhibitors, along with hyperkalemia.
1: Then he talks about the effect of ALDO here in terms of sodium reabsorption. He has this beautiful tidbit. He says that on a low sodium diet, which is going to increase your aldosterone levels, the number of sodium channels goes from less than a hundred to three thousand, which I loved. I don't know if that's per cell or per centimeter. I don't care. It's just a great <laughs> little fact. It's per cell. It's per cell. You Less know, than hundred to it, three thousand. And, and it's incredible. Inter- well, you begin to think about like, well, boy, you really you could probably titrate that amiloride up quite high if you're trying to block that sodium channel. It's going to need a lot
4: of it. That's a great point, Joel. Because uh, I have had some just verbal uh, discussions with more senior nephrologists who have treated patients with amiloride, and they would tell you that just. Go up five, ten, twenty, forty, and you know it's something that uh, that is not necessarily written in a book. It's more experience, and, and it kind of makes sense with your in terms of the abundance. Of- yeah, because it's not linear. I
1: mean, you know, from less than one hundred to three thousand. I mean, that's a that's kind of an eye popping number. Yeah,
3: it's also an argument for using a little more uh, of a aldo- aldosterone antagonist. And then he talks about uh,
1: little syndrome, which is the world's hardest disease to spell: L I D D L E. Not. L-I-T-T-L-E?
2: You don't think barters is harder to spell?
1: Oh, God, no. Barters Barters is is much harder. Impossible. You're right. Never mind. I didn't meant to. Thank you for correcting me. Barters is the worst. And so a little syndrome is an activating mutation of Enex syndrome. Anybody seen a little syndrome patient? I had one that rolled into my office. You know, they saw him. And on the first visit, I'm like, I know exactly what you got. You got primary hyperaldo. I'm going to check your aldo level. This is going to, you know, and I'm I'm bragging about what's going on. And the aldo is unmeasurable. And he comes back. And then I asked him about his family history. And sure enough, brother has it. Dad has it. Dad had a stroke at age 44. I was like, oh, it sounds autosomal dominant. Boom. Sure enough. When I say I took a history his history was positive for hypertension in his brother and his father, both at young ages. The history was not positive for Little Syndrome.
0: We had a Little Syndrome patient I saw when I was a fe- uh, first-year fellow on uh, heart failure service. And so as part of teeing him up with goal-directed man- uh, medical therapy, he was put on spironolactone and taken off of the amiloride that he'd come in oh. the door on. And we got consulted for, why do we keep having to sling 200 equivalents of potassium a day at this person, and why does it not stick to him? And the answer was totally in the physiology here, right? You can put as much mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist as you want on a person with little syndrome, but it will not suddenly make their ENAC channels work like normal. It will not decrease their activity to normal levels. You need a channel blocker like a Milleride to make it work. Uh, and so when we talk more about ameloride, we'll get into that. I think that's my diuretica choice in uh, in two two months.
1: It's a, it's a cool drug, and it, it's more useful than it gets credit for. On the opposite side of the coin from Little syndrome, which is an autosomal dominant activating mutation of the ENAC, we have an autosomal recessive inactivating rotation of the ENAC channel. And this is pseudo-hypoaldosteronism type 1. And, and just if you think about it, if you have an activating mutation, you would only need one copy of it to be activated. But if you have to inactivate the gene, it, you need to lose both copies. And that's why it's going to be autosomal recessive. It kind of makes sense if you kind of start to think about the genetics of what's going on. If you got to lose both copies for this to be inactivated, and this is going to cause hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis, and hypotension because there'll be sodium wasting, they won't be able to reabsorb their sodium in the ENAC channel.
7: And we didn't mention licorice, but that's the uh, that's the test question always, right? And that was in the news a while ago too, wasn't there like there was a, a
1: – no, it, it was a New England Journal of Medicine article. A guy died of a heart yeah. attack, right, or had a heart With attack. Listerousic acid. Yeah.
7: I actually – our renal physiology course was like right after that. So there was some question and I was like, oh, I'm going to teach them something. And everyone's like, yeah, licorice, right?
1: Right. And so, and so let's just – let's walk through that. So that's going to look like primary hyperaldo. It's going to look like your little syndrome. And it looks a lot like Little syndrome because they will have hypertension. They will have hypokalemia and they'll have metabolic alkalosis. And so you look at them, you're like, "Ah, I know what this is. This is primary hyperaldo. You measure their aldo levels. Their aldos are completely suppressed. And there's, and this can be genetic. And that's what, that's called syndrome of a paramineral corticoid excess. And that's autosomal recessive, or it can be acquired through licorice, which is with glycerinic acid which suppresses the beta The
4: 11 11-beta-hydroxy-sterohydrogenase.
1: <laughs> That's why we have Juan Carlos here, because somebody's got to be
7: able to pull out the 11-beta- That's hydroxydea. what I said, Juan Carlos. Quit copying me.
0: <laughs> well done. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, this enzyme converts cortisol to cortisone. Do I got that right? Cortisol, cortisol to cortisol. cortisone. Yes, so cortisol fits into the mineral corticoid receptor, but it, but it circulates at about a thousand times the concentration of aldosterone. And so if you don't deactivate it, you will constantly be activating your mineral corticoid receptor with cortisol. And so you have to deactivate it. That's what this enzyme does. And that enzyme gets deactivated by glycerinic acid. Totally cool physiology. Super cool stuff.
3: It has to be the real licorice, not the red stuff that we buy in uh, Jewel. It has to be the yeah. stuff from Britain or whatever. And it's also been described in chewing tobacco and anise-flavored f- liquors. It's, there's a bunch of products out there that have it so it's and a lot of chinese
1: medicine uses it as a sweetener
7: is it that disgusting chicago malort i think it's in malort licorice tea like you needed another reason not to drink malort
3: i don't i don't need any reasons i not love to drink
2: licorice it. myself so good oh,
7: oh melody
3: disgusting.
2: you were too perfect to be true
3: <laughs> do you like kale too
2: but we'll have a party at my house i'll serve beets and asparagus urinary delights oh to goodness. follow Liquor and some jicama. I do like jicama, actually.
6: Yeah,
3: I love it. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, all kidding aside, these are all. disorders gordon's and gittleman's and licorice and and glucocorticoid suppressible hyperaldosteronism they're all we never see them but i believe you can count on them on the boards so it's something you just you want to tune up on they're
1: all on the they're on the boards and and they're on the boards because they demonstrate how the kidney works right that's why we test them is like by looking at these diseases you can walk through and if you understand the diseases you understand the physiology right that's why we test them and then the, the last bit about sodium is he says that most of the dietary changes in sodium intake are regulated here. This is where it happens, which I thought was good.
6: You know, he mentions that the collecting tube has a low amount of ATPase, but it is, it is mediated by aldosterone. And so theoretically, that concentration could increase, and it, it just depends on what the kidney needs to do.
1: And that uh, these principal cells are also ADH responsive and and ADH works exactly the same way that ADH comes in, causes uh, preformed aquaporin channels to be inserted into the tubular side of the membrane and allows water to be reabsorbed. But the principal difference here. Principle principal difference here is that water is not flowing into the concentrated medullary system. It's just flowing into the body. And so he says that in the cortical collecting duct, the urine osmolality is about 100 and the serum osmolality is going to be 285 or close to 300. And so you're going to be able to remove about two thirds of the volume in the presence of ADH. But this doesn't dilute your medullary system. We're not, we're far from the medullary system in here. So this, I always talk about this as being reabsorption of two thirds of the volume of the water here for free. You don't have to worry about disrupting your medullary interstitium for this. So this is a super important aspect of it, right? Because that building that medullary interstitium is very energy intensive. Uh, and we remove two-thirds of the volume here without worrying about it. And this is in the cortical duct duct. It's a really good point. And then he goes into the... Int- intercalated cells. He describes it as sodium independent regulation of acid base. We have two ways of uh, acidifying the urine here. We have a hydrogen ATPase and we have a hydrogen potassium ATPase where you have hydrogen secretion and potassium reabsorption. Both of them are generated with an ATP. We use ATP to generate that. And then on the basal lateral side, we have a chloride bicarbonate exchanger to remove bicarbonate from the cell. And then he leans into this concept that I didn't quite understand. He says that aldosterone here is permissive. Did anybody understand what's going on when he talks about aldosterone being permissive here? Because that I, I, it wasn't explained enough or it was... Exp-
2: I underlined that too. What I thought he meant was that aldosterone wasn't activated per se by an acid-base disorder, but was activated because of either... High, high potassium or from volume and then would lead to the changes that it does but that it was not itself regulating an acid-base disorder that's the way i interpreted it
3: i think that's
1: right Right. And he does He does say that if you do have primary hyperalgo, you're going to see metabolic alkalosis, which we, we talked about. And then he talks about the, that if there's an alkali load, again, the same intercalated cells or the B intercalated cells are going to be secreting bicarb. And he says that it's reversed polarity that does it. But he does say that there's a it's not the exact same transporter, yeah, but it's basically... The identity of this transporter is uncertain, however, as it does not appear to represent the same chloride bicarbonate exchanger that is present in the basolateral membrane of the hydrogen secreting intercalated
3: Which is really a shame, because I'd like to think that you've got the same cell, you just flip everything, you know, and we'll turn one time we'll go this way, and the other time we'll go this way, but apparently the... Well, but he does, he does say that the hydrogen
1: ATPase is the same. So on w- one half of it is the same. It's just this one is not doesn't happen to be
3: the same. Does anybody know, um, you know, the hydrogen ATPase versus hydrogen potassium ATPase? What percent of, of protons that end up in the urine come from... I always thought it was mostly the hydrogen ATPase. I hadn't really thought much about hydrogen potassium. Does anybody know? I don't know what percentage
4: is, but that what the book describes is that the hydrogen potassium ATPase pump is regulated by or stimulated by hypokalemia, whereas the hydrogen ATPase pump is regulated by aldosterone. So they might be turned on under different circumstances. So I'm not sure how easy it would be to quantify their contribution. And as far as the uh, bicarbonate uh, secretion in the apical side of the book, this says that it's not known my understanding is that we know think is pendrin name of this uh, exchanger.
3: Oh, that's where that's where pendrin comes in. And why, yeah. and why is it, why is that important? That's pendrin is definitely after this book. To
6: your point, how the chloride bicarb exchanger in the beta intercalated cell and the alpha intercalated cell are different is because we call the one. The one pendrin, and then we call it, we don't call the other one pendrin, even though they're both chloride bicarb exchangers.
1: And just as a reminder for people that are a little rough on pendrin, pendrin, it secretes bicarb in response to metabolic alkalosis. It's how you get get yourself out of the metabolic alkalosis box, because you need to secrete pendrin. But that the pendrin is suppressed with hypokalemia and with chloride depletion, right? Both of those things suppress pendrin. uh, I don't know if it's expression or activity, but that's why you need to correct hypokalemia and you need to correct volume deficiency for your body to, be, to correct uh, metabolic alkalosis.
3: Yeah, it's really chloride. You have to deliver chloride. It's not even volume. That's right. that's exactly right. It's specifically
1: a chloride deficiency, right? Not just
3: volume. And, and I always thought it was volume, but the proof of that is you can give albumin and expand volume, but if it's not, if you don't have chloride, you're not going to be able to excrete uh, bicarbonate. Maybe
2: this is minor, but you know, if you have a big bicarbonate load, if you are not volume depleted, then couldn't you just not reabsorb it? in the proximal tubule. And so then you just dump that bicarbonate with yes, a cation. And no offense to Pendrin lovers, but is it really that important?
4: I think think outside of metabolic uh, chloride depletion, metabolic alkalosis, I have never thought of a clinical importance of Pendrin. Like what you describe of exogenous alkali, I would agree that why would you need Pendrin for I don't know. But I, I think what is important is that, you know, I, when I read this book the first time, uh, it wasn't known that this was pendrin, And you look at cartoon 5.3 and 5.4, and they have the same exchanger. So, you know, we're very, very technical about this name, but it's important because uh, the, the, the one in the basolateral side articulated A cell. The gene that encodes for that exchanger is AE1. It's an anion exchanger. If you get a mutation for that, you get uh, kids in pediatric nephrology will know this. They get renal tubular acidosis. Whereas pendrin is a different gene that encodes for the one expressed in the apical side, and mutations in pendrin have actually different, even extra renal manifestations. I think they have some auditory manifestations and some other features that are very different than the other mutation.
2: I love that. Thank you, JC. Okay. And then he
1: says that, remember, the intercalated cells, totally unresponsive to ADH, no water reabsorption going on right here. And then the other important thing is that in the response to hypokalemia, you can do a lot of net potassium reabsorption. We don't really usually think about the distal nephron doing potassium reabsorption, but when it happens, it's the intercalated cells job and that's going to be that hydrogen potassium ATPase. So again, we were talking about hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis. And you can see right here in that hypokalemia, you're going to want to reabsorb potassium in the distal nephron. And unfortunately, it's going to require you to secrete hydrogen. And so you're going to acidifier urine when you probably don't want it. And then the very last segment is going to be the medullary collecting tubule. And this was interesting because this was, a, again, a lot of stuff I had not thought about or not heard about. He says that these are unique cell types. To me, they sounded a lot like principal cells. You got your ENAC channel and they're going to be reabsorbing sodium. But instead of a potassium secretion here, you get a lot of chloride reabsorption. So we talked about how when you get that sodium reabsorption, you get a negative tubule and then you get potassium secretion or chloride reabsorption. Here in the mesolite collecting duct, you get sodium reabsorption and then then chloride reabsorption through that paracellular route, not potassium secretion when you get late in the nephron. But the key story here is going to be ADH responsiveness and water permeability. That in response to ADH, you're going to get, again, what we talked about aquaporin being put into the membrane. But here, instead of water being reabsorbed going to the peripheral circulation, and we're going to have the concentrated medullary interstitium. So on the opposite side of these medullary collecting tubules, you've got an osmolality of 1,200 reabsorption, but you get all the water reabsorption, bringing the urine osmolality up to its peak concentration. And then he talks about that this ADH also stimulates potassium secretion that increases the number of potassium channels in the tubule, which is, this is another function of ADH that so we don't normally think about. Concern here is that when you get water reabsorption, you're going to decrease tubular flow and that naturally antagonizes potassium secretion. Again, I know we're going to be going over this a lot more when we cope with potassium. So if you don't get this, I think it's okay. We'll come back to it. But to counteract that potential decrease in potassium secretion ADH directly stimulates the either additional channels or opening more of these potassium channels
3: One thing I find interesting that keeps coming back in a couple of these areas is the the coupling of ion potassium ATPase. To reabsorb potassium in a lot of areas, you've got to get rid of a ion, So you're paying the price. You're paying that to maintain normal kalemia, you obligately are creating a metabolic alkalosis. And it's it's interesting to me because it says that, you know, you'd rather be alkalotic than hypokalemic. And it it kind of makes sense because the heart and, and muscles are, it's probably more important to have to have enough potassium around than to be than to have a high pH. And the kidney makes that decisions in several areas. This is a this is a good example. The one I always teach is is that you'd rather be hyponatremic than hypovolemic. And that's why water wins over sodium concentration, because you'd rather retain water, even though it's not a great source of volume, you'd rather retain water than no water in the setting of hypovolemic hyponatremia. And I think it's really fascinating when you look at how some things trump others because you have to make a decision at some you point. You
7: have other mechanisms to, to deal with it an- an acidosis but, or an alkalosis, either way, but you don't have any other mechanism to deal with hypokalemia. So,
3: uh, yeah, you we well, we can always just
7: stop breathing. Fine,
3: exactly right. But I mean, you don't get everything sometimes, you know. Sometimes you have to pay the price for what's more important.
7: The only other mechanism to get rid of potassium is the bowel, and it's not like you can stimulate that by being hyperkalemia. Wouldn't that be interesting if hyperkalemia prompted you can. diarrhea? You can. I
1: think you can. Right. Yeah, yeah, because a aldosterone.
0: Yeah, I think I've seen that in. In dialysis patients, in particular, you see them massively upregulate their potassium responsiveness in the colon. It's actually kind of crazy. We had one dialysis patient who underwent a colectomy, and all of a sudden was hyperkalemic all the time. We couldn't figure out why, and it was because all of his potassium excretory ability was now gone, and it was off in the path lab. Yeah, I mean, well, you, Josh you, brings you,
3: up a really good point, though. I think I think that's really underappreciated that you know aldosterone works in many areas. It's it's not just in the kidney; it's in the g- the gut, it's in sweat glands, it's all over the place.
4: Early and early. In. Episode, Melanie, you, you mentioned that what do we have to get rid of sodium? It was only atrial peptide, right? ANP. And Roger earlier was talking about how uh, salt wasting uh, conditions cannot exist because you're always going to be able to pick up the slack later on. And here is a peptide that is uh, particularly functional at the inner medulla where there is no other segment beyond that could actually limit its its ability to promote naturesis. so it's it's really fascinating how th- that works then atrinotrect peptide doesn't work in the distal nephron and the proximal tubule perhaps it does but it's certainly not to the effect that it is in the inner medulla and I also wanted to quickly mention because Early on, we talked about bradykinin, I happened to work with some colleagues at MUSC that did research on bradykinin, and they will kill me if I don't correct uh, the fact that I didn't say this the first But year. it's going to be five episodes later. Bradykinin, <laughs> bradykinin is a natriuretic uh, a, a, a compound. It is also, it works in the inner medulla. So it's not just enteronidic peptide, it's also bradykinin, inner medulla that promotes naturesis. Are we going to finish on Brandon Condon? Because I think that'd be a great way
1: to close this out.
6: No, I have something to say. <sighs> okay, so at the very end, when he talks about how the ureter and the bladder, they, there's also exchange that can happen there. I lit- That literally blew my mind. I'd never even thought of that before. And so I was doing some Google searches. So apparently this has been really studied or thought of in the American black bear because they hibernate for 45 months out of the year. But they still make urine every single day, but they don't pee because they reabsorb oh, yeah. all of that fluid because there's aquaporin channels inside of the uh, American blackberry's bladder. So it's not that they're not making urine, they're making it. They're just wow. reabsorbing all of it. So, so they don't why? Why don't they just not
7: make it? In their four or five months. <laughs> I hour. guess for the
3: rest of the year. That, that, well, that hits know. interesting. Was like that one one was, was cool. cool. That's, That's very interesting. That's so. so cool. <laughs> crazy because how can you how can i do, you do nothing for, for six, months of the year. six
0: months and still stay alive because you're but can you imagine being the poor graduate student who's like what in, what model organism <laughs> do you study i study the black bear <laughs> oh really you know it seems a little more dangerous than mice and flies and right <laughs> never catheterize a sleeping bear that's like i wake them up and i
7: catheterize and
2: <laughs> like, good
7: morning <laughs> that's what i always say
0: It's
1: amazing that in the same podcast, we went over tighter than a toad's bladder and the loosest bladder of all, the black bear. It
6: reabsorbs in the bladder. Unbelievable. I have one side story, but it's not related to anything nephrology, but it is related to animal uh, fact trivia. So my husband told me today that in beavers... They have an, an anal gland that secretes the flavors. It's, All the it's stuff. apparently it tastes like vanilla. How do you know
5: this, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, are, are, you you sure are you sure you want to ask us? I'm
1: like, right. it's I'm I gotta go. It's a it's 11:45 at night. I'm not talking about anal vanilla glands. I will talk to you guys later. Thank you very much.